Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You speak true and beautiful things that are of eternal significance. You speak of your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we might know him. And Father, we pray this morning, whether we are very, very familiar with this passage, whether we are completely fresh to it, Father, we pray that we will hear you speak with ears of faith, that we might receive your magnificent truth and that we might know your magnificent Son. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was at GAFCON back in 2018, Archbishop Ben Kwashi and others from Nigeria provided significant leadership. Kwashi and his wife Gloria have adopted 56 orphans. There are so many orphans because of the persecution of Christians in Nigeria. In the lead-up to Christmas last year, Christians in north-central Nigeria began receiving a letter warning them that they would not be celebrating Christmas. The government took no action to protect them and the Christmas weekend was marked by scores of murders as Muslims attacked, including neighbours known to their victims. By the new year, over 200 had been killed and the attacks have continued into 2024. Who knows how many more Christian children have been orphaned in recent weeks. God willing, I will be in India later this year teaching an intensive for some Indian pastors. In recent years, more and more Indian states have passed anti-conversion laws. These are supposed to stop people being coerced into changing their religion. In practice, they are used to persecute Christians preaching the gospel. 400 pastors and church members have been arrested in India's largest state, Uttar Pradesh, in that state alone, just in the last three years. Even the United Nations has described these laws as a tool of persecution. They are certainly emboldening militant Hindus to engage in direct intimidation and violence. I've met plenty of pastors in India who take a great risk in exercising their ministry. In recent years in China, there, have been, there has been a concerted effort by the government to force churches to insert the doctrines of the Chinese Communist Party into their theological core, to reinterpret the teachings and practice of Jesus along party-approved lines. As people therefore flee the official churches to the underground churches, there has been a corresponding repression of the underground church movement. People getting arrested, people being ostracised and cut off from their community and social services and shamed by family and neighbours. Why don't Christians in Nigeria and India and China just decide it's all too hard and give up following Jesus? Why don't they just cave and become Muslim or Hindu or communist and secure a good reputation in the community and a peaceful life? In the West, we don't experience anything like what brothers and sisters do in other places and brothers and sisters throughout history have. But we experience more hostility and oppression than we used to. 
More and more big corporate organisations take positions on political and social issues today and expect those who work for them to express support for the, for the position of the employer, to you know, share their values. When those positions are contrary to the word of God, work life can become a bit of a minefield for the Christian. In different parts of the country, the Christian high schooler who tries to share their faith in the playground can get in some pretty serious trouble at school. Certain acts of prayer are now theoretically illegal in Victoria. Like the anti-conversion laws in India, anti-vilification laws are being abused here in Australia to harass Christians who express unpopular but biblical truths. And our culture has moved to a point where it it doesn't care and it thinks that Christians deserve it. Open, aggressive contempt for Christianity is now socially acceptable. To the postmodern mind, Christians are the bad guys. Human Rights Law Alliance documents numerous cases of blatant discrimination against Christians on its website. One of the Anglican churches here in Sydney had a hateful symbol graffitied on its door not two weeks ago. If we are living the authentically Christian life, then I am sure that over the years you have drawn responses from colleagues or neighbours or acquaintances, even strangers, that are hostile. Maybe you know the contempt regularly, maybe even aggression. What stops us from going, following Jesus is too hard, I want a quiet life, I want people to like me, and so I'm going to stop following Jesus. Or more commonly, I'm going to quietly keep turning up at church every Sunday and sit through Craig droning on about Jesus and the Bible, but I'm going to think and live like everybody else the other 167 hours of the week. What stops us from doing that? The world is a hard place for those who follow Christ. So why persevere in following Christ? Because we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. Back when I started with Anderson Consulting, we all had to read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I see some nods. Some of you have also had to read this book. It's a good book. Covey's second habit is begin with the end in mind. Before you start a project, be clear on the destination that the project is supposed to deliver you to. For the Christian to persevere in truly following Christ, despite the challenges, despite the costs that it involves, we must live with the end in mind. We must be very clear where it is that God is driving the great project of human history. We must be clear on the end to which God is directing all all of this world. Because the end is magnificent and it is glorious and it is exciting. And Vision Sunday is a time to lift our eyes to a vision of where God is taking us so that none of us miss out on it and so that all of us live in the light of it.
And we don't focus on my vision for our church or some committee's vision statement for our church. God's vision for God's church. And it's a literal vision which we find in the second half of Revelation 7. And it's a vision with two key dimensions. It's a vision of the God who saves and it's a vision of the future that we are saved into. The God who saves and the future that we are saved into. So Revelation 7, 9 to 17 is first and foremost a vision of the God who saves. John sees this great endless sea of people. It's a very racially diverse crowd. They're from every nation, tribe, people and language. But they're all dressed the same and they're all carrying the same props. They're all dressed in white robes of victory and they're waving palm branches which people used to do during the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles and other celebrations. You might remember the crowds waved them for Jesus when he rode in Jerusalem for a different feast for the Passover a week before he was executed. They're dressed to party, to celebrate. Why are they celebrating? The answer is in verse 10. Look at verse 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is their cheer. God is Saviour. Over and over they cry it out at the top of their lungs while they wave their palm branches like those, you know, the enthusiastic sports fans at the game waving their signs. And the enthusiasm of the great crowd, it infects the heavenly host who surround them. And so at the end of verse 11, you see there, all the angelic beings, they respond to the great crowd's cry and they fall down on their faces in worship before the heavenly throne. And they say, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen! And my sense is they say it quite loudly. God is a saviour who deserves all praise and glory and thanks and honour because he has saved this great crowd with mighty wisdom and power and strength. And the way that he has saved them reveals his glory and his wisdom and his power. How has he saved them? Look at verse 14 and tell me the answer. How has he saved them? By what has he saved them? By by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you. By the blood of the Lamb. Flick back a couple of pages to Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 and see how Jesus the Lamb is described. Chapter 1 verse 5. There he is, the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins. How? By his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to serve God. Same ideas there, we won't read it, but chapter 5 verse 9. When we stand before the heavenly throne of God and of the Lamb, we will cry out with delight to God as Saviour because God's Lamb first cried out for us at the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it is finished. 
the wisdom and power of God, the glory of God is revealed in this. Sinners are saved from hell and brought instead into this heavenly celebration by the shedding of divine blood in atonement. This is what saves sinners. This is the only thing that saves sinners, the sacrifice of the lamb who was slain and yet lives. Never move from that. Never compromise on that. We joyfully celebrate God as a glorious saviour, as we will for all eternity, because the sacrifice of the Son at the cross saves us from hell and saves us into this glorious heavenly scene instead. The blood of the Lamb is the means of God's salvation. This is a ridiculous, scandalous, obscene message to the world in which we live. But it is the truth. And if we stand anywhere else when it comes to how God saves, we build on sand and we will come to ruin. The blood of the Lamb is the means of God's salvation. And notice the glorious scope of God's salvation. Notice the glorious scope of God's salvation. The crowd stretches further than the eye can see and, and, and it is from, where is it from? Yeah, everywhere, everywhere. Even, like as a church, even our best efforts at showing others the glory of God, our Saviour, produces limited fruit. From all of our visitation, our outreach groups and and in response to all of our prayers and all of our personal efforts, we get an awful lot of indifference and a fairly slim harvest of people saved and born again. But on the last day, we will see that the person here and the person there who have come to know God as Saviour, when you add them all up from around the world and down through the ages... They are a great multitude that nobody can count. It will become obvious that the ridiculous, unbelievable story about atonement by divine blood and the resurrection of a man from the dead shared by that handful of unimpressive men in that obscure corner of the world, it grew into something glorious and magnificent under the hand of our glorious and magnificent God. Friends, do you recognise yourselves in the great multitude celebrating God as Saviour? Do you recognise yourself? When you recognise the horror that he has saved you from at the price of divine blood, are you moved to praise him as our Saviour? What about when you recognise the blessing that he saved you into? which is the second thing the passage gives us a vision of. It is a vision of the future that we are saved into. Shift your gaze from the saviour to the saved multitude. Notice what is said about us, because it's us. Notice what is said about us in this passage. Firstly, the blood of the lamb has washed our robes white. I don't understand that from a laundry perspective, but 
white robes are a symbol of purity and victory. We are washed clean of every sin and have complete victory over every enemy. And part of that is that we have come out of what? What does he say we have come out of? Yeah, the Great Tribulation. And some people do some very complicated things with that term. But this is Revelation's way of talking about the struggle and the hardship of living as God's people in a world that is both hostile to God and under his curse. If you read the experience of the first century churches in Revelation 2 and 3, you see that John saw them as experiencing this great tribulation in their own day. Christians have been experiencing it in different ways and varying intensities ever since and we will until the end. But at the end, on the day of Revelation 7, it will be gone and done. No more hectoring from a blasphemous media. No more punishment in the workplace for faithful witness. No more abuse of legal process or bureaucratic power by petty agents of the evil one. No more Indian and Chinese churchgoers arrested for their faith. No more traumatised Nigerian orphans. No more. Instead of great tribulation, an eternity of divine blessing and protection under the royal tent of him who sits on the throne. The fierce heat of the world's hostility will never be experienced ever again. We will be home with our Saviour in peace and plenty, in perfect rest and perfect love. Every tear, every tear wiped away and we will be free to devote ourselves to what our purified hearts will desire above all else we will engage in worshipful service of God and we will follow the lamb who leads us to true and satisfying life I don't really know what that looks like on a daily basis I sometimes sit and ponder, but I don't know. I have an illustration to make sense of it now, but I, I sometimes... Good question for question time. I sometimes sit and ponder, but I don't know. What I do know is that in the Bible there is no greater privilege than priestly service of God. And there is nothing more satisfying than living waters. And so I reckon it's going to be pretty good. And we'll do it together, unhindered by all the divisions that have plagued us for so long. Our joy in our shared saviour will overwhelm every racial and cultural boundary that have caused so many problems and issues for us throughout history. All gone. This is what lies in store for those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb if they persevere in trusting and following the Lamb. This is how our story ends. No matter what pain or conflict or struggle our story involves now, the joy and celebration of this scene, that's how our story ends. This is a vision of where God is ultimately taking us. 
And if we're going to live with the end in mind, what are some of the implications for now? That's what I want to finish with. Three. Firstly, persevere in your faith in the Lamb. Persevere in your faith in the Lamb. Keep following him, even when it provokes hostility or discomfort, even when it involves cost and sacrifice, even when it hurts or makes you weary. We are in the age of great tribulation. These things must be endured by the faithful. But the way the story ends makes it worth it. Is there a cost at work for you following the Lamb? The end makes it worth bearing. Is there damaged relationship because of following the Lamb? The end makes it worth it. Do you lose social credit for following the Lamb? The end makes it worth it. For some, there is the risk of violence for following the Lamb. The end makes it worth it. As a church, we must keep doing what Christ expects of us and teaching Christ's truth regardless of the response it might sometimes provoke. The end makes it worth it. Secondly, Celebrate your Saviour now as you will for all eternity. Celebrate your Saviour now as you will for all eternity. As we gather each week like this, we are foreshadowing the gathering of Revelation 7. Do you realise that? This thing that looks so mundane and familiar as we engage in it, this is an earthly manifestation of the reality of Revelation 7. So, gather to celebrate. And when we gather, celebrate. Sometimes when we sing, those who are up front looking out tell me that they wonder if we really like the God that we're singing about. Can I encourage you, use our singing for one of its intended purposes to celebrate the goodness of God as we sing of who he is and what he's done. Engage with the truths that we are singing and and use the act of singing as an act of celebration of our Saviour. It doesn't matter if you can't sing. I can't sing. That's why I sit at the front. You can't hear me. But don't just celebrate in here in that way. Celebrate out there. Why do we do awkward stuff like knocking on doors for visitation and labour-intensive stuff like English classes and play and sing? Because we think God is an awesome God who's given us an awesome future and we want other people to meet him and receive his salvation too. Why do we stimulate to think about things like you know, how to share the gospel at the gate at school and all the other personal evangelism training stuff that we do? Because we know a God worth celebrating and we want others to meet him too. Imagine if God used you to gather others into the great multitude. What a privilege to be part of God's saving work 
What an honour to lead someone to the Lamb who leads to the springs of living waters. Thirdly, finally, let's be a church of people who invest themselves in serving God now. Who invest themselves in serving God now. Because there is no greater privilege or blessing or good and it is therefore what we're going to be doing for all of eternity in the new creation. We all live busy lives, yes? But other things we're busy doing, things that are going to mean anything on the day of the great gathering around the heavenly throne. Every single person who follows the Lamb has been given gifts for the building up of Christ's church. Do you know what he intends us to do with them? To build up Christ's church. What are you using yours to do? How are you investing your time and your treasure and your energy in building Christ's church? Which ministry teams do you contribute to? Which mission partners are you investing in? And which have inspired you to consider joining them? How do you teach this vision to your own family so that they don't miss out on it? What prayer power do you devote to praying your kingdom come? To praying for people to be gathered into that great multitude with you? Which faltering brother or sister are you seeking to encourage or rebuke so that they make it all the way to that day? There are lots of things we can devote our time and treasure and energy to. Are you investing in the ones that are going to mean something on the day of that great gathering around the heavenly throne? Let us live now with God's end in mind. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the saviour that you are. We praise you for the blood of the lamb that washes us clean. We praise you for your wisdom and your power and your strength. We revel in the future you have so lovingly gathered us into. And Father, we pray that this vision might be with us every day, that we might always live for you with your end in mind. Father, where your word today needs to encourage us, please encourage us. Where your word today needs to rebuke or correct us, Please rebuke or correct us. Father, may we all persevere with the Lamb until the end. May we stand for him in the face of hostility. May we not be those who shrink back, but those who trust him all the way through the great tribulation. And Father, may we be people who look forward to this day, who see that we manifest the spiritual reality of it now, but who want to experience it in all of its fullness on that last day. May we be people who hunger for that. And Father, as those people we pray, may this day come very, very soon. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.